to the Untribal podcast, the show that gives you news content by regular people for regular people. Today, I'm joined by Kelly for the telly. Uh, Kelly Gibbon was a finalist in Channel 4's Make Me Prime Minister, an Ember last with passion for politics, who's done a tremendous amount of work highlighting and destigmatizing uh, those with invisible disabilities. Welcome to the show, Kelly Gibbon. How are you doing today, Kelly? You all right? Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, no, I'm good. Good, glad to be here. I love this podcast, so I was buzzing when they asked me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. Well, I mean, that that last point, actually, Kelly, is, is where I want to begin, if you don't mind, because it's something that's close to us. I actually, myself, struggle with ME. Um, we're working with Holly Mac Films to bring out a documentary next year, and something I find really interesting about your story is the years of misdiagnosis that I actually similarly went through myself. You know, my, my readers will know about the doctors tell me it's it's probably all in your your own head actually yeah. i had one gp saying to me you know you're bothering us i use the word bothering us that much with your sore throats and your viral infections which i found out later wasn't the case you've probably got tonsillitis and it wasn't until i was lying on a hospital bed about to get my tonsils ripped out that a doctor actually stopped the procedure and went hold on this guy does not have tonsillitis um and this folk with me will know it's the misdiagnosis that puts you under such emotional strain because essentially you just don't know what's wrong with you and you're you're going through all the stuff and it's only until you get that diagnosis you can take steps to sort it out and if only I knew years before I could have slowed my life down and and you know not tried to live at full pelt as I did for so long and people don't see the internal struggles like you know they don't see the hours that you you, you spend lying there in pain you, they don't see the half an hour that I've just spent lying on my office floor just making sure I had some energy for this podcast for example they don't see the you know I've actually had to change my diet for example cutting out carbs they don't see the the dreams that I have about scranning bread and butter and walking on these lands of donuts and kinder buenos and all that which is just absolutely mental and you shoot up with panic every time you have one and it, it happens to me about three times a week and yeah and on top of all that all that pain and stuff that you go through and I imagine you went through similar it, obviously not the same, but similar internal uh, troubles with things like your ADHD. I was wondering if you could talk us through some of that and and what you would say to others in, in your situation. Definitely. I, I totally resonate with your experience. And it's almost like being gaslit by, it's like a form of gaslighting by doctors who tell you, you know, this isn't what's wrong with you. You're just, you're bothering us. You've, you're just wasting our time. You keep coming back here with the same things. Um, and it's, it's, it's almost like you start then gaslighting yourself and you're like oh well, maybe actually I am overreacting maybe there isn't anything maybe there are, and you start to believe it but there is this sense of for me the, the most difficult thing was like the sense of having no identity like I couldn't understand myself at all and I couldn't understand why I was the way I was why I didn't really fit in why I was different to other people and that is so isolating and so difficult because when you have, I think people really take for granted their sense of identity and how much that actually means in, in practice and how much that actually sets your path in life is understanding yourself. If you have none of that and you, I mean, I didn't, I wasn't diagnosed until I was, what, 24. So for 24 years, I had no idea who I was, what, how I operated, how I could respect myself and my needs. I couldn't honour any of the needs that I had. And it was just so, so challenging. And I think I'm actually very angry about it now because for years and years, like my, my entire teenage years were totally consumed by not understanding myself and all this turmoil all the time. And it was so unnecessary. It did not have to happen. Um, and like when I look back now, like I was 
um, referred for an autism assessment when I was 14 and this the man in charge rejected the referral without even meeting me he didn't meet me didn't know me didn't know anything about me he just said he wasn't convinced and that it was probably a mental health disorder and he should be I should be referred to psychology instead now that was a pivotal pivotal moment because if I had been referred properly I would have been diagnosed at 14 and then I wasn't diagnosed till 10 years later so that one decision by that one man set the tone for my life for the next 10 years which ended in homelessness and I lost multiple jobs and I went through a lot of stuff that was just wildly unnecessary and did not have to happen um but even from a physical disability perspective I mean I'm being diagnosed now at 25 with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome which is something that I was born with um now when first of context I was born with dislocated hips and spent months in traction and had a lot of procedures to, to try and help it and it, it was fine it, it got better and as soon as I came out of, of plaster with my hips I dislocated my shoulder. Now, within the first year of my life, I'd had dislocated hips and a dislocated shoulder, and no doctor thought maybe we should like <laughs> we should investigate that. Yeah. And one of the characterizations of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is dislocating limbs all the time for no reason. <laughs> um, so I've, it's now taken me 25 years to be diagnosed with that, and because of that, the symptoms are much worse. I'm in a lot of pain, and there are things that happen that shouldn't have happened. So it's actually detrimental to your health to be gaslit like that by your doctor. So I, I totally sympathize with you. I think it is, it's one of the most odious things you can go through as a human being is to know in your soul that there is something there that they're missing and to be told time and time again that you're wrong and that it's not that. Um, I think I actually one time had a doctor say to me, she said she looked, I just got my diagnosis. Now I've been fighting for this diagnosis for 13 years. The diagnosis itself was like, so liberating for me it was so it was such an important moment in my life and this doctor said to me um oh I see you've got an autism diagnosis on your file she's like that's not good we don't want that I was like what and she was like um well if you were really autistic you wouldn't be able to sit here and have this conversation with me I was like what are you talking about and she was like <laughs> she was like nobody wants an autism diagnosis like it's just not good for you is it I was like okay <laughs> and that was literally straight I think it was about a month after I'd been diagnosed and it was just like really like you're a consultant doctor and you're going to sit here and say that to me about autism if you can't get this right who is going to get this right like it's just exhausting so yeah that whole process was just grim and now that I look back on it it does make me very angry because I think it was so needless there was no need for that you put me through that for no reason my whole life was down the toilet for 13 years because you just didn't do your job properly and it, it does really anger me and I feel like I missed out on a lot I missed out on like the most important years of my life they're such formative years and I missed out on all of that I missed out on so much fun and enjoyment but for what mm. literally for nothing um, and yeah. so it's really it is really difficult and that's why I do the work that I do now because no no person should have to go through that like it's just not it's not yeah it's just not okay. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I hate that you got that moment taken away from you because I, I myself, that moment of diagnosis was so liberating as well. I, <laughs> I must have been the, the happiest person in the world to find out they had a, a chronic illness. I mean, it was like, Literally. oh my God, like a weight <laughs> off your shoulders. But uh, no, I, I can totally, you know, resonate with so much of what you just said there and but luckily enough I had sort of 18 years of my life where you know I wasn't blighted with any of that and I'm wondering how what was that like at school and and talk us about the homelessness as well school I found very challenging um I, in primary school I was one of these like 
typically autistic children who like very very like academically advanced and I had like I, I was in the top groups where they had, I had my own groups for everything because I was so like advanced academically and I got all these awards I remember leaving the um I left primary school with like the overall achievement award that was voted by the teachers and like I was literally like star people everyone hated me and <laughs> then I went to high school and just absolutely crashed and burned like high school for me was hellish it was like I couldn't understand why I was so overwhelmed all the time. At home, my behaviours were really difficult and my family really struggled a lot because I was, you know, having to spend eight hours a day at school, stressed out my nut, but didn't understand that I was stressed, didn't understand that I was having to mask for eight hours a day so that when I got home, my God, it was like, I, I would just erupt. Like, I would just be like a volcano. I'd literally just erupt every single day. I would like, my behaviours were so, I was so fragile all the time. I was like, overwhelmed all the time. Um, and my family had no idea what was going on. So obviously none of us knew we were, I was autistic. So no, none of us had the tools that we needed to really make sense of any of that behaviour. So from the outside, it looked like I was just a problematic child who like, I was just a typical teenager who was like having tantrums and I was just difficult. And that was kind of the box that I was put in was like, she's just a difficult child. Um, and I remember this one woman actually said to my mum something like, um, oh yeah, she's a problem child. Like I wouldn't want that for my son. Like she was like so snooty about it. Um, and that's the box that I was put in by a lot of people was that I was just problematic and difficult and that that's just how it was. And then, I, then it was the mentally ill box. I was put in this box that was like, uh, you're mentally unwell, you're not stable, you're not capable in the same way as other people. And that in itself made me mentally unwell. There were definitely periods of my life where I was very, very depressed and very anxious and very mentally unwell because I had just, I just couldn't cope. I, hadn't, I couldn't cope with anything because I just didn't have the tools to cope with it. So school for me, I found very difficult. And also like, I knew that I was capable of getting like straight A grades. I'd done it in primary school. I knew that I was academically advanced. I knew that I could do it, but I, I couldn't do it because I didn't have the tools to do it. And at no point in that school journey, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I sat down with the deputy head teacher, with the head teacher, with the year heads and had the same conversations. And at no point did anybody think to say, maybe we should look at like an autism diagnosis or an ADHD diagnosis. Nobody at any point in that journey thought critically about it at all I was always punished it was always like we'll go down the punishment route we'll put it on an attendance timetable we'll do this we'll give our punishment exercises it was never looked at with any compassion um, and that is what I saw and I think that's what I always say that's what I sorely lacked when I was a teenager was just compassion people were very judgmental about and including like my own family and friends very judgmental about how I was but didn't think for a second to look beyond the surface and to think about why that behaviour was a thing and what was actually the problem. Um, so that eventually all came to a head when I was like 19, 20. It really, it really started to, I just couldn't cope anymore. There was no, I'd been going through this for years. I was like, I'd been spent years in this like fight or flight mode all the time. Didn't understand myself, didn't have the tools I needed to make anything bearable. Um, and it just, it was just all too much. And my family couldn't live with me because they thought that I was just a problem and they thought that I was just, it was just bad behaviour. And so they began to resent me. Um, I was kicked out by my mum. I lived with my dad for a while. I eventually had to leave there too. I eventually then was like sofa surfing with my friends and like seeing whatever I could. There were times where I slept in my car. Um, and that in itself, even from a very basic, like sensory perspective, like sleeping in your car <laughs> when you're an autistic person, not good. <laughs> like, very <laughs> not good. <laughs> 
Um, so all of those things were then like compounding on each other and making it even worse to the point that like I was 100% in like a full-blown mental health crisis for a long time because I just could not it felt like it was just never ending it felt like there is no way out of this for me there is no place for me anywhere nobody accepts me and then one day I actually so my little cousin is, is autistic um, but he presents in a very different way to me um, and we've been we've always been very connected and I always sort of flirted with the idea that I might have been autistic but I never ever went anywhere with it because I thought no Patrick's life is much more difficult than mine like I I don't present like him at all it doesn't look like that in me at all so it can't be autism like there's no way and then after all this sort of came to a head I um started find I found it on I think it was neurodivergent Lou on Instagram she's like this and this the creator on Instagram who does things about neurodivergence in women and girls and I'd seen a couple of her posts and like they didn't explicitly say this was an autism thing but like they would they would list things that she did and she's an autistic woman she would list things that she would do and didn't realize were autism and I started reading them and thinking oh wow like <laughs> I do all of these things <laughs> I remember the one that really like blew my mind was she said that she she doesn't like to sit in a chair properly and if you've ever seen me sit in a chair you will never see me sitting up straight in a chair even now my legs are twisted in all sorts of directions like <laughs> I don't sit still ever and that for me was like oh wow I didn't realize that was an autism thing and then I just started reading it and reading it and in a very autistic way got obsessed with autism and <laughs> started like I was I was more sure than ever I was like this is what it is I know I know for a sure I know for a fact this is what it is and all the diagnoses of, I mean, I got diagnosed five times with five different mental illnesses. And every single time I got diagnosed, I was like, there's something missing here. I don't resonate with this at all. Like, this is not me. And as soon as I started reading about autism, I was like, oh, wow. Like, <laughs> that is me. That is 100% me. There were no doubts in my mind. So I went digging even further and got um, my, I, I found the, the, diagnostic things that they use in the NHS and they're like these like tests that you score and I scored them and I think I got something like I got nine out of ten in one of them and I got I think it was like 69 out of 70 or something in the other one and I thought wow like right. <laughs> wow <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and from that moment like everything just changed like from that one moment in my life everything changed us all of a sudden had the tools that I needed I understood myself my relationships with my family and friends completely improved like it was crazy overnight how different my life was mm. and I just think imagine I had had that when I was 11 or 12 or when I originally went to the doctors imagine I'd had that then how different things could have been absolutely. but yeah it was very unnecessarily challenging yeah absolutely and and it's interesting uh, from what you, yeah, you mentioned there the internal sort of battle that you have with yourself where you're thinking, oh, I'm, I'm not that bad. I don't go through this, I don't go through that. Because there was a moment on uh, Make Me Prime Minister, which we'll also talk a little bit more about, where you had, it was, you had such a strong voice and you said with such confidence that I am disabled. And it was the first time I'd seen someone in politics say it with such confidence. And it was almost like outing people that have had this internal struggle because even I have had stigma towards myself about it and, and I think oh, I'm not as bad as like some people in this and I can do that I can do that and there's almost a balance you need to strike yourself because my symptoms were exacerbated so much by COVID I give myself this positive psychology where I'm like okay it's the COVID that's making it really bad people have got through it and I'm sort of like reassuring myself to give myself hope and then you need to strike that balance with saying well, no, like, like I need some recognition as well. Like a lot, this is like out with my control. This is really difficult. And 
with 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 you saying that in in such confidence, it it struck an emotional nerve with me. Where I was like, on your cell, Kelly, like class, like someone's actually up there on stage saying it with such confidence. And and I just wonder, did you have to build yourself up and make a thing of saying that, or is it something that comes naturally to you? It's something that it's an interesting one. It's something that I have committed to internally, like as a an act of like. I'm going to honour my needs here and this is how I do it because for so long I wasn't able to honour those needs and I let myself down like I couldn't look after myself and even when I was even when I was diagnosed trying to I would constantly keep trying to go on as I did before when now I know what what my triggers are and how difficult my life can be and this was a way of me I just committed to myself one day I was like no you need to own this you need to like accept that you are a disabled person and this is what it means for you and you need to make other people respect you as the disabled person that you are and I think that's one of the most difficult things with an invisible disability is that people don't look at you as disabled people have a very one-dimensional view of what disability actually is they have no idea generally speaking what it looks like in practice um and I just I just premiered a documentary the other day that I was in on invisible disability and one of the really interesting points that was made in that documentary was that all disabilities are invisible. Whether you can see a person as disabled or not, there are aspects of that disability that are invisible that people do not understand. And the general population and the non-disabled population have no idea what it is like to live as a person with an invisible disability. And they will look at you and assume that you're not disabled. And so when you are disabled, they don't know how to handle it. They don't know how to treat you because they don't understand disability. And so for me, standing up and saying I am disabled this is what my needs are that is me honoring myself because I can't expect people to honor my needs if they don't know what they are but also I'm putting myself out there because it's the truth like I am disabled that is my truth if you don't like it you're not for me you're not you need you don't need to be part of my life like that's just how it is and I'm, I'm almost told like when you're applying for jobs don't disclose you're autistic because you won't get anywhere and I really resent that and every single job that I apply for uh, one of the first things I say is I'm autistic and I will claim a guaranteed interview because I am autistic and you won't believe how many jobs that I am qualified for that I get rejected from because I say that I'm autistic but it will never stop me from doing it because that's another way for me to assess whether I'm in a safe place or not if I can stand up and say I am disabled and it's accepted great if I stand up and say I'm disabled and they don't want me great because that's not a place I would have been looked after anyway so for me it's about like asserting my boundaries honoring myself but also making sure that the places that I'm entering and the situations that I'm putting myself in are situations that are safe for me as a disabled person and that where I will be respected and treated as a person in them um so I think for me it is just about that commitment to myself and it is difficult I'm not saying it's not challenging it is daunting to stand up and say I am disabled in a world where disabled people are not valued to this in the same way and where we're not looked after and in a world where nothing is built for us it is very daunting to stand up and say that you are disabled but it's also very empowering because people are taken aback by it they don't expect you to be proud of the fact that you're disabled they don't they don't expect you to want to harness it in that way so when you stand up with that confidence and you say I am disabled these are what my needs are that's a bit of a power play it's a bit of a like yeah that and so what like and it takes people back mm. um, and it does it does you, you will get more respect for doing that like they will respect you because they'll think okay fair enough like well, who am I to challenge that um, so yeah it's just about honoring yourself and just that can make that commitment to yourself that you have a space wherever you want to be and that you should be able to turn up as your authentic self in that space good for you and 
you know, I, I've listen. I've applied to the Circle, for example, which I think is a brilliant reality TV show that <laughs> must come back to, to Channel Four. I'd low-key love to go on Mad at First Sight because I love that show so much as well. My mum yeah. is currently screaming at her phone saying, "Don't you dare!" <laughs> but what made you decide to go and make me Prime Minister? It, it's a challenging show, is it not? It was very challenging. I so I love reality TV. I am one of those people. I just love it. I love Love Island. I love every single reality TV program you could watch. Like the Kardashians are literally they are problematic. Love them. I love to watch them. I think they're so entertaining. I've always been like that. I've always loved reality TV. But also I'm very political and I've always been in politics. So when I got this DM, so I'd actually seen the show advertised and I sent it to my friend and I was like, the way I would eat this show up, like I actually still have the text. I sent the photos <laughs> to my friends and I said, the way I would eat this show up, like this show is the ideal show for me. Like I love reality TV, I love politics. And they were like, Kelly, oh my God, you need to apply. Like you should do it. And I didn't think anything of it. I didn't apply. And then about three weeks later, I got a DM from the show being like, hey, we've seen your stuff online, like, um, she was like, it was a casting director, she was like, we've seen your activism online, wonder if you'd have time to have a quick chat, and I was like, oh, wow, this is a sign, like, I didn't even apply, <laughs> and so um, she gave me a call, we had a bit of an interview, then I had another interview, and then within a few days, they'd flown me down to London to, like, meet the executives, and I just knew, like, it just felt very natural, it just felt like that's what I was supposed to be doing, it felt like it was the right choice, um, I had done the casting process as well for Love Island and it didn't feel natural to me at all. It felt very forced. It felt like something, it felt terrifying. Like it felt very scary. Whereas this felt like, yeah, of course this is what I'm meant to be doing. Like it means I can be myself. It means I can like combine the two things that I really enjoy, but I can still be me and I can like continue with my career. And like, it just felt very natural. It felt like what I should have been doing. And then the show itself, um, I got that I mean the turnaround was very quick like it was like I think maybe like three four weeks from beginning to end where like they slid in my DMs and then being flown down to move to the show was like three four weeks um, so it was very fast moving I didn't really have much time to think about it <laughs> but also when you're filming the show you forget that like this is going to be on national television like you don't think you're filming a TV show and you, it's very easy to push it to the back of your mind because the show wasn't airing for another three months after we finished filming so it was very easy for me to go and film the show actually like I just had to get on a plane and go and live in London for a while like I went and filmed the show and it was fine and then all of a sudden I think the nerves didn't really kick in for me until it was airing and I was like oh shit like I'm actually on tv now like <laughs> this is actually going to be a thing people are going to know me like I don't know how I'm going to be edited like I have given all the rights to the producers I don't have a clue what this looks like and I've watched it for the first time with everyone else so I had no idea of what was about to come out <laughs> so I think for me I felt very at ease throughout the whole process and very like even when it got very difficult and it did get very difficult at points I was like this is a once in a lifetime opportunity just enjoy it like you're only here for a few weeks and you'll never get this experience again like just go for it so I was very calm throughout the whole process it wasn't until I think it aired that I was like okay <laughs> this is more nerve-wracking and then I think after the first episode they'd edited me well like it was fine I didn't get any abuse online and I still to this day have not had any abuse online which was one of the most one of the things that I was most worried about I think I was just very relaxed after that I was like okay that's fine so of all the things like of all the different parts of the process I really wasn't that nervous or anxious about it once which again tell tells me that it was the right thing for me to do and that it was it was a good choice 
Yeah, amazing. I, as, as mad how we like raised our eyebrows there, we went, wait, you didn't get abused online? Like, like I know. Which, which I is know. crazy. <laughs> mad, but uh, another topic. But yeah, when you when it came to becoming alternative prime minister at first, I thought you were absolutely tremendous. You know, maybe aside from the fries and strawberry sketch, I thought that could have been a little bit better. <laughs> but... Do you know this as well, right? So this is, this is another thing. Those things we don't have much control over. So like you that media launch we had to write the media launch before we had a policy and i raised the point that was like how are we supposed to create a media launch for a policy that we don't have and we were given like a selection of props and a selection of venues and stuff like we only had a choice of like three or four different things um and you're also in competition with the other team so if the other team choose the prop that you want you can't have it so we had a selection of a, ve a very limited selection of props and stuff to use, but we also didn't have a policy. So we're sitting there trying to write a media launch for a policy that we don't have. And I remember I actually kicked off a little bit at the on the day. I was like, how are we supposed to do this? You're literally setting us up to fail. Like, there is no way that we can do this. And they did. That's exactly what happened because we then had a media launch that made no sense, <laughs> like did not correspond to our policy whatsoever. But we couldn't have done anything else because we didn't have a policy at the time. So the way that they've edited it makes it look like we set our policy and then we did the media launch and then we launched it. But actually what happened was we did the media launch and then we did the policy and then we launched it. So I keep trying to say this over and over again because that's the one thing that made me look like a bit of a dick was this media <laughs> launch. I thought, right, I'm actually not having that because <laughs> I did raise the point at the time that we couldn't have done that properly. So... Fair enough. Yeah. I'll I'll take your word for it. That was <laughs> <But> no, <laughs> no, I thought you were you were really composed. You said you weren't nervous. I, I think they they were constantly pointing out how composed you were. Um, I I, I was wondering who do you sort of model your sort of tone in conversation? Or I I seen a bit of Nicola Sturgeon in you. I'm not gonna lie. When you were when it, for example when you were doing the LBC interview, you were so relaxed and it felt so natural. Nicola Sturgeon is definitely like my in Scotland anyway like my political idol like someone that I've always looked up to so she's the reason that actually I got into politics in the first place my mum I was getting ready to go to university to study business and like I wanted to do fashion business and go down that route and my mum dragged me to the borders one night to listen to Nicola Sturgeon speaking and I remember sitting there and just thinking wow like you're so composed and so like powerful and you speak with so much conviction and it was actually her that really inspired me and like that's the reason that I eventually got into politics so I definitely do model myself on Nicola Sturgeon I think she is very composed I think she handles opposition very well um, and I think the thing that she does very well is that she doesn't get bogged down in politics as usual she's she's just she believes in what she believes in and she fights for it and she doesn't get bogged down by the sort of infighting and the the nastiness and the the personal jives and that she does she's just not like that and that I respect that about her but it's interesting that you say that because that's something that people said to me throughout the show was like you're like a mini Nicola Sturgeon like my brother was at the final and he was like it was like watching Nicola Sturgeon speak like <laughs> you can tell that you look up to her and actually Jackie Weaver not the biggest fan of her she um called me a Nicola Sturgeon wannabe when we were filming so I've never had a nicer compliment in my life Jackie Weaver thank <laughs> you <laughs> um but yeah definitely Nicola Sturgeon one of my biggest political idols is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez I love her and I think she really represents what it means to be like a fierce unapologetic woman in politics who like doesn't care who she has to upset to make change like she's she's ready to fight for what she believes in um yeah and I, also it's interesting that you say that I look very composed at that LBC interview because I was shitting myself like <laughs> I was like I was very very nervous about that because I mean I'd done a lot of TV and stuff before but 
and knew that like he's he is very highly regarded as someone who is very fierce and like he will rip into you and I was just waiting and I, I also knew that it, he was more right-wing than I was and like my policies were very left-wing and socialist so naturally they were going to be up against more opposition so I was very like sitting at that table I was sweating like <laughs> absolutely sweating. and I actually felt like the interview went really badly like see afterwards I was like oh god like I don't know how that went like I felt very stressed out about it and then it was later on that day Alistair and Saida sat down and they were like you smashed that like you're so good and I was like oh okay <laughs> like <laughs> I was sitting here thinking that was terrible but okay nice and then work. when I watched it back I was like that is some mad acting from you because <laughs> you've got a good look, poker face I'm sorry like that <laughs> I do look like I'm calm but I am not calm <laughs> I, I thought your I thought your eye per, for perception was brilliant. Like when you were doing the health stuff, and you were very careful not to be like shaming people with obesity, and you know instead of going for saying like a gym pass, shaming people at exercise, you were sort of careful of that. And you went and did the free school meals uh, thing, which you actually won that challenge as well. There was a moment where the Irish lad went, uh, "Oh, what do you think, Pink Banner, your name?" And you were like, "Oh, do you think I'll just be one of those like silly wee bitches that were pinking their name in that?" <laughs> so it was brilliant, and you know I I just. I also wondered as well, you know, a lot of your policies were funded by corporation tax. Now you said you've got a lot more socialist views. Where was that coming from? Did that did that come from some of your your personal views or? Yeah, like I'm very I'm very like there's no beat around the bush. I'm very left wing, very socialist. I don't enjoy right wing policy in any way, shape, or form. I don't think the taxpayer, the the average person, the average working person, should pay for policies like that. I think we need to rebalance the wealth in this country. I think it's one of the biggest problems that we have. Um, and also, we only had, and this is another thing, we only had a certain number of financial avenues that we could take. We were only offered like three or four different, I think it was three actually, per challenge. You had three that you could have chosen from. And again, if the other team chose before you, you had to choose from the remaining two. So, oh, so that wasn't just up to yourself. Oh, that's no, interesting actually. No, a lot of it was directed. Like there was a lot like, our policies were completely our ideas, but we had to choose, like the funding models and stuff were chosen from a list of three that they gave us. And if the other team chose first, you only had two. So you had to kind of, whilst you were making up policy and stuff on your own, you also had to work within parameters that they were kind of deciding. So yeah, and I think like another important point is that we had literally, I think a grand total of maybe about 30 minutes to come up with these policies and to cost them and to get advice on them. like we see snippets of these conversations we only had those conversations only lasted maximum like i would say five to ten minutes at a time like we were never sitting chatting for hours on end like we had wow. literally 30 minutes maximum in each challenge to come up with a policy to have it costed and then it's like people are expecting us to have these major government policies that take months in reality to to come to fruition they expected us to have these co completely nailed down and done really well. I'm like, we had 30 minutes, like maximum to come up with these things. <laughs> so there was always going to be holes in them. There was always going to be difficulties and things that we had to, to work through, but we just didn't have the time to do it. And I mean, that's part of the show. Like it is a reality TV show. Like it's not real life, but yeah, it was, it was good, but it was, it was hard. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and speaking of the final, yeah, you know, the, the, I think the the reality was you had three really likable characters in that in that final. I I would have said you were the best, but that's pe probably come from a personal Scotland and Edinburgh bias. <laughs> uh, I I would have actually liked to see more of the Irish lad. I thought he had a lot about him. I thought he was unlucky that he didn't get the chance to be prime minister. And I agree. I think that's one of the biggest things, the biggest losses to the show was that Connell never got the chance to be the prime minister because 
he was very like edgy very ready to like go in and make change and I think he could have really done something with it I don't think he got a fair opportunity and I think another one was that Danny Price should have been in that final there is no way that Danny Price should not have been in that final um not to say that the the three that were in the final weren't good but Danny Price was if we're looking at for an alternative prime minister Danny Price is the definition of alternative and he had so many big ideas he did so well in the challenges when I actually when I looked back because I, I mean I knew this at the time and I said this to Danny at the time that he should have been in the final but when I looked back on episode five and he gave that speech about like why he wanted to be in the final I thought how on earth could you have listened to that speech and not put him in the final like what did not compute there like it just that's madness to me that he wasn't there so I think that's another big a big letdown from the show actually when we're looking for an alternative to have not have had him in the final. So yeah, I think two big injustices there were Danny and Connell for sure. Well, what I found bizarre was in, in the final, you know, <laughs> they, you, you were asked to sort of present on this uh, one sort of promise manifesto that you were given. And then what I found bizarre at the end was when they opened up to like general questions and they asked about your, like how you would save the union. I thought like, give the Scottish lassie a chance. Like that, these are down in London. That's obviously going to divide people. And, you know, I, I actually think out of the three of you that were in the final, not to say that you all weren't brilliant candidates, but I actually think the, the one that looked the least self-assured when she was speaking was the winner. I, I can't remember her name. And since then, you know, I think the National reported that, that you said that the show was rigged against you. That was a big call, but what was your thinking mind that? I mean, that article was very sensationalised. Like, <laughs> it was, I mean... I don't think that it was, I don't think there was some mastermind plan by Channel 4 to like oust the independent supporter. I, I'm not going to play into that narrative. What I do think though is that that question was not an accident. And I know that it wasn't an accident because they came to my room that morning and they had said, so we'd already agreed prior to the final, they had asked me like, do you want to talk about independence at the final? And I said, no, because, you know, the audience are 44% Tory there is no way that that's not going to disadvantage me. I said, I want to talk about independence, but talk about it on camera so that the audience can see it. Like, independence is my main political ideology. It's what I've, that's why I got into politics in the first place. It's, it's what I believe in. And I had already filmed an interview for, like, my master interview about independence and about why I believe in independence. And I said, that for me is more important than it's in. Um, and so there was already an agreement that they, we weren't going to talk about independence at the final. And then they came to my room that morning and they said we're going to talk about independence. And I was like, I thought we'd already, like, we, we filmed an extra interview for my master interview for this reason, so that I could talk about independence without being disadvantaged. And so they then pulled it again and they were like, no, we're not going to do it. Like, it will disadvantage you. There's no two ways about it. It will, like, we'll just not do it. And then they sprung it on me on the stage. Now, there are a number of reasons that that's problematic. First being that, like, they knew that it was going to disadvantage me and they did it anyway but also that like I'm an autistic person and you gave me no prior idea that that was going to happen I hadn't I was totally blindsided by it that lack of being able to plan was really difficult for me as an autistic person and that's not fair and, and what you don't see is like I came off the stage and I was like in tears I was like all worked up like that had been flung at me I didn't know that it was coming I felt flustered it really threw me off and it was very unfair and that's all I said that's all I said when I spoke to the national was that like that final for me was not a positive experience. From start to finish, like from filming the entire episode, I had a horrible time filming that final. It was not accessible for me. I didn't feel like I was ever gonna win it. I don't think I ever would have won it. And when you look back at it now, as if they were gonna let 
an independent supporting Scottish nationalist win a show about being the Prime Minister? Like, <laughs> of course they weren't. But it's just almost then, like, why would you cast me then? Like, if you don't want me to win it, what is the point in making me go through all of this, making me go through all of these challenges, which were, like, deeply mentally exhausting, <laughs> if you're then just going to not let me win it anyway? Like, it's just... The whole thing just really wound me up. And I... It's a shame because I had such a positive experience up until the final. And in the final, I just hated every second of it. I hated even, like, the campaign bus, like, the the campaign video when we were filming the video you, you see me having a bit of a meltdown I was on that high street from not joking hours and hours and hours like filming that that was not an accessible thing for me as an autistic person they basically put me in a high street right now I chose to go to the high street to film the video but what I didn't choose was to go to the high street and work there so like they put me on a bench in the middle of a busy high street on in London on a Saturday afternoon and they said right write your speech and I thought, like, what part of I'm autistic do you not understand? Like, <laughs> I what? can't write a speech here. Like, what are you talking about? And so they were like, oh, well, we have to do it here. Like, we don't have anybody else. And I'm like, I, I don't think you understand what I'm saying. I cannot do it here. Like, there is no two ways about it. I need a quiet space. So they eventually let me go and sit. And actually, it was after Connell was like, no, this is enough. Like, she needs to go into a quiet space. Like, we're not having this. So eventually, they let me go and sit in, a, um, in the back of the car, right? But they sat in the back of the car and they stood by the car outside the window waiting on me, timing me. They were like, okay, you've got this amount of minutes. And then they would open the door every sort of like, I would say three minutes and be like, okay, you've got this amount of time left. You need to hurry up. And I'm like, do you understand what I'm saying when I'm saying that I'm autistic? Like, I am struggling. I'm so overwhelmed. I'm having, I'm like, I'm having like sensory overload. You're pestering me constantly. I also hadn't eaten anything. I hadn't had a break all day. Like, it was just insane. And so from that that was the first day of filming the final. Then we had the campaign bus the next day, which was again, sensory overload. Like I was literally being assaulted. My senses were being assaulted from all angles all day long. And then we had the final. And it's like, none of that was accessible to me as an autistic person. None of that experience was, I look back on that final and I think I had the shittest time filming that final. I hated it. And I'm like, that in itself is unfair. Like, how was it? I was constantly, like, from start to finish, I was climbing an uphill battle that the other two weren't climbing. Mm. And even standing on the stage, like, the makeup of the final and how it worked, like, they were cracking jokes with the audience and doing all these things. And I thought, I'm, like, I'm too autistic for that. Like, I can't, I'm, I don't have the same rapport. Like, I'm, I, my communication is very different. And I, I was made to feel very different. And I noticed how different that I, I was when I was standing on that stage. And that in itself is unfair. And I think, like, the final for me not a positive experience at all i hated it i hated every second of it from start to finish so yeah, as I, I, soon as that I, was I, over I'm, i was glad i could visibly see that to be fair you you know i think you, i could even see your face after you were asked about how you'd save the union i could see it you were just like emotionless like come on like, give, me a, give me a break <laughs> do you know at that point in my brain right that because the other two got to answer before me right so i was sitting there and i was like I'm just going to go out in flames here. Like, I am going to stand here and fight for what I believe in. Like, fuck the 25 grand. I don't need 25 grand. It's fine. Like, this is not what I'm here for. Like, I am not here to win this. I'm not here for the money. I'm not here for the title. I'm here to send a message. This is my opportunity. So I stood there and I just said exactly. And I mean, that my answer was a lot longer than what was in the edit. But I spoke a lot about, like, the Good Friday Agreement and about like Scottish independence and about the will of the Scottish people. I, I spoke very passionately about it and I felt so good after that final because I thought, Do you know what? I didn't sell myself out there. I went up there, I was myself. I could have easily have stood there and said, like, yeah, let's save the union for the sake of winning. 
but I didn't and I got to speak about something that I'm very passionate about and I felt very good about it afterwards I felt like you know what like you went out there you were yourself you did what you went there to do and I don't think a lot of the other candidates can say the same thing and I felt very when I left like I felt very good I felt so good about all of it so yeah the final not <clears throat> was not my finest hour didn't enjoy it hated it actually but I still felt very good about the process once I'd left I felt like do you know what you were totally 100% yourself the whole way through that and for you. what else can you do yeah, absolutely. I, I, to be honest, you, you did come across well in that final. It, it was just that moment you were asked, and you just—I could see you were flushed out. But uh, to, to return to the, you know, a more general point, do you think that there is some agenda in the Scottish media to suppress the voice of independent supporters, or or do you think that's, you know, do you think that's too much? I actually, I think it's getting better. I mean, I think there are definitely like there are definitely biases against independence there definitely definitely are but oh wait my doorbell is ringing <laughs> sorry <laughs> sorry my doorbell is ringing yeah um, that's cool you can go answer it if you want I'll go and <laughs> let them in, but... <laughs> um... <laughs> um i think there are biases against independence but what i will say is that like I don't find that my, I mean, I'm very unapologetically a supporter of independence and I don't think that has ever held me back media-wise. Like, I get invited to do things all the time. I get invited to be part of panels all the time. I get to speak all the time. Like, I don't think I am suppressed because I support independence. What I will say is that there's definitely been instances, there was one in particular where I was interviewed on the radio last year um, during the Scottish Parliament election and... I said that story that I told you about when I went to see Nicola Sturgeon and I um, she really inspired me and they basically like edited the programme so that it sounded like I was part of like this, they, they described it as an evangelical cult, like they, they, they described me as evangelical um, and they really twisted what I said when actually I'd spoken a lot about like youth politics and like all those other things, they twisted it very purposefully to make it sound like I was like some evangelical Nicola Sturgeon supporter so wow. I will say that I have been manipulated in the past by the media but I do actually think it's getting better and I've seen a lot of improvement especially in places like the BBC actually a lot of improvement like I took part in debate night a few weeks ago and the panel was majority independent supporting which is crazy like <laughs> for the BBC I do think there is a con conscious effort being made um to actually make it more balanced but I also don't know how much of that is because the UK government is literally a shit show and maybe, maybe, I don't know if I'm being optimistic, they're just getting tired of tying themselves to that and like maybe people are starting to wake up a little bit to the prospects of independence and what it actually could look like. Fair enough. And listen, I won't steal all your uh, afternoon, Kelly. I, I can see you're busy. Um, Not at all. I, I think uh, just to sort of finish on, on that note, you know, you seem to be... Uh, doing everything that a politician does without actually being a politician so what, <laughs> what, what does the future hold for for kelly given i don't know do you know i i quite like being in politics without the aspect of being a politician like i quite like that i don't want to and i think it i i'm kind of like falling into the, the biases of it around politics and politicians because i don't want to be chewed up by the system i don't want to become a politician i don't want to be part of like that infrastructure I don't want to just be another politician but then I think no like look at Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez she is not just another politician she's been a politician for years now and she is still herself she's still out there fighting for the things that she believes in in the same way that I want to so 
well every time I think about being a politician I'm like oh like I don't want to just be a politician I don't want people to just think of me as a politician and I can do politics now and I do politics now without being a politician so it's kind of best of both but also that's what I want like that's what I wanted to do since I got into politics that's how I think I can make the most change so I think I think I'm probably more anxious about it than anything else I think it's my own anxieties about being a politician and about what that means for me and like what that would mean for my life and my, the direction that I'm going in. But I think you probably will see me throwing my hat into the ring at some point. I can't wait for the Scottish Daily Express to take that snip of the <laughs> podcast of, I do not want to be chewed up by the system. And four years later, you're standing in Parliament. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Uh, I listen, know. You, listen, you've been a brilliant guest today, Kelly. Is there anything you want to say to our listeners before you finish it up? No, just thank you so much for having me. I've been having a great time. Thank you. Okay, cheers, Kelly. Love us to speak to you. Bye.